Hello and welcome to UCD ScholarCast. I'm PJ Matthews from the UCD School of English, Drama and Film. The following talk in the series Gender and Commemoration for the Irish Memory Studies Network will be given by Emily Pine, lecturer in Modern Drama at UCD School of English, Drama and Film. Commemorating Abuse, Gender Politics and Spectatorship This lecture is about the role of Irish culture in the recognition and commemoration of institutional abuse. Rather than try to describe the whole field, I will go into some depth on three recent works that address this history. And through discussion of these three, I'd like to pose some questions about both the past and the present why the abuse went so long unchallenged, and what implications that has for commemorating it. Buildings form the central focus of the three theatre and artworks I'll address in detail, Broken Talkers' The Blue Boy, A New Production's Laundry, and Evelyn Glynn's Breaking the Rule of Silence, all of which were first presented in the autumn of 2011. These works address specific named places and invoke their particular histories. Artane Industrial School, the Sean McDermott Street Sisters of Charity Laundry and the Limerick Good Shepherd Laundry. Moreover, by exploring what is inside these buildings, the works also necessarily explore or ask the audience to explore what is outside the buildings too. So, by focusing on buildings rather than following individual histories, these works illuminate multiple narratives as they intersect. There are two forms of narrative that culture can follow, either a familiarising or a defamiliarising narrative. These three works create a liminal commemorative space negotiated between these two types of narrative. They are familiarising because they are based in and around known locations, but they are ultimately defamiliarising in the ways they make spectators look anew. The Blue Boy Broken Talkers are a devised theatre company led by Gary Keegan and Phelim Cannon. Keegan says, Theatre is quite an elitist, closed-off art form that involves a clear separation between the artist and the audience and we always had a problem with that. Broken Talker's work consistently challenges that boundary. The Blue Boy is a demanding work. The theatre audience is actively engaged and required to participate in the interpretation and construction of meaning. The performance consists of two main parts, with the stage divided into two. A small four-stage is divided by a transparent screen from the rest of the main stage. At the opening of the show, Gary Keegan directly addresses the audience, describing how, as a child, he had played with his grandfather's yardstick and that he only learned in recent years that his grandfather used it in his job as an undertaker. One of his grandfather's duties was to visit Artane Industrial School to measure any child who died in order to make a coffin for him. Gary pauses his story at this point and the production plays a recording of Gary's mother describing how upset this used to make her father. 
He was used to seeing adult bodies, but the children's bodies and the bruises he saw on them upset him. After this story, Gary walks to one side, and a projection onto the screen shows images from the 1932 Eucharistic Congress, while various recordings play, including two stories from people who had been in the schools, one male, one female. At this point, the screen, opaque until now, is lit from behind so that it becomes transparent, and we see seven actors in choreographed dances performing ritualised and repetitive tasks. They wear masks, and in one case the mask is worn on the back of the head, so that the actor's body seems to move out of joint, against expectations. These opening few minutes reveal the approach broken talkers take to this material. Gary's direct address to the audience begins with funny stories of his childhood, and the audience's laughter establishes trust immediately. This is essential because of what is about to unfold as the performance moves from innocent childhood games to the less innocent representation of the systematic abuse of children. The wrongness of the institutionalisation of children is embodied on stage as the seven masked dancers move in repetitive, erratic and shuddering movements. No actual violence towards the children is shown nor are any religious figures represented. Instead, the dance moves imply the internalisation of violence. Gary's narrative continues by telling the story of the ghost of the blue boy, seen by the locals of Artane and assumed to be a child who had died at the school. Gary explains the varied local stories about this ghostly figure, locating Artane in a context of communal memory. The ghostly blue boy, I would argue, was a mode for the community to articulate its suspicions of the abuse occurring within the institution. By rendering it as a supernatural story, the community was able to know and not know, to articulate and yet remain silent on the issue. As Gary says, growing up in that neighbourhood we got a sense from our parents and grandparents that bad things had happened to the children in that place. As a child, I didn't know the details, but we knew that bad things had happened on the other side of that big grey wall. The audience's attentive spectatorship is the kind of scrutiny that needed to be directed behind the actual institutional walls, but wasn't. At the end of the show, Gary reveals, again using autobiography as a way into the history, that he was adopted at a few months old. His mother, most likely, went through the care system herself, in a mother and baby home, or a laundry. And these are the walls which the next two projects go behind, of Magdalen laundries in Dublin and Limerick. Laundry by A New Productions, and Breaking the Rule of Silence by Evelyn Glynn, like the Blue Boy, are intimately connected to a sense of place. Both works, in fact, are site-specific, occupying former laundry spaces in order to transform them from sites of forgetting into sites of memory. Laundry. Laundry is a theatrical experience devised by A New Productions, 
and is one of a three-part series of theatre works exploring the forgotten history of Dublin's north inner city. Laundry happens within the former convent and laundry of the Sisters of Our Lady of Charity on Shaw McDermott Street in Dublin 1. The audience members encounter the piece one by one, first knocking at the door of the convent and then walking through the rooms inside, guided by a series of actors playing the women of the laundry. Audience members encounter several scenes within, including a woman reciting names of those who had been incarcerated in the laundry, a woman taking a cold bath, a woman mourning her lost baby, a woman who sought refuge in the laundry at her husband's direction, and a woman frantically trying to escape. In one room, the spectator witnesses several Magdalene women beating themselves and sitting in contorted positions, reciting the statutes of human rights which the laundries operated in contravention of. In several of these scenes, the spectator is requested to participate directly. In the bathing scene, the spectator helps the young woman to unwrap herself from the bandages which tie down her breasts, and then, after bathing, helps once more to rewrap her. In the final scene within the building, a woman asks for help to escape. The spectator must accept a bundle of laundry herself and hurry through the building, following the woman as she makes a desperate bid to join the outside world. Once out of the building, the spectator is bundled into a waiting taxi, and the taxi driver asks, Do you know her? The test is, of course, as to whether you say yes or no. The taxi drives the spectator round the local streets, and the driver delivers a narrative about the history of the local area, the Monto, and the history of the laundry within the community. The piece ends as the spectator is dropped off at a modern-day laundrette, asked to iron or fold sheets, while listening to an archived radio programme about the laundry system. Laundry is, thus, a deeply local project as well as a national one. It gives access to many different experiences of the laundry. The experience of moving through the building though it can never transport a spectator back to the original experience, does go some way towards making the history of the women within materially real. Moreover, this is not a restored building. Rather, the decay is visible in the peeling paint, the disused rooms and the sense of emptiness. This decay is suggestive of the time that has passed since the laundry's closure, and, like the action of moving through the building, it helps to make visible the dual processes of history and performance-making. Most of the performance is silent, adding to the oppressiveness of the experience, mimicking the rule of silence which was the case in the laundry, and alluding to the historic silencing of these women. As this production preceded the 2013 McAleese report on state involvement in the Magdalene laundries, it also referenced the continuing official silence regarding them. In laundry, the blurring of the lines between performance, performer and spectator makes visible the process of constructing a theatrical piece. And this visibility is important. In presenting a history of suffering, a theatrical language is needed 
or more generally a language of representation, that does not gloss over the acts of reconstruction integral to memory and history. Laundry, like the blue boy, is both invented and real. It is the role of the spectator to navigate between these two positions. And because it is a performance, it is always shifting and changing, analogous to the shifting patterns of memory. Breaking the rule of silence. Part of the fascination of laundry is in going behind the walls, seeing into buildings which were closed off from public gaze, and navigating spaces which were previously highly controlled, though there is still an aspect of control, of course, in how spectators are guided from one room to another. Going behind the walls is also key in the interactive art project Breaking the Rule of Silence by Evelyn Glynn. Glynn was a student in the Limerick School of Art and Design when she conceived the project that became Breaking the Rule of Silence. Because the Limerick School of Art and Design, up until 1994, was the convent and laundry of the Good Shepherd Order. Since the site was renovated for its new purpose, Glynn wanted to capture its history before all traces disappeared. As she says, With every structural change that was taking place, it seemed that the history of the building as a Magdalene laundry was being put further out of reach. Breaking the Rule of Silence, which is now accessible as a website, is a combination of photographic and oral history. Glynn's photographs display the signs and traces of the convent, from the worn nameplate on the door to the disused spaces of the attics and former laundry. The site also displays archival photographs of the grounds and women and children of the laundry and convent school. These photographs are accompanied by 16 oral histories, interviews which Glynn carried out with people who had connections with the convent and laundry, including women who had been put in the laundry and their relatives, the operator of the modern laundry, and a woman who ran a local girl guide group. As with the two theatre pieces, the project demands an active spectator to interpret the images and to read the histories. What is striking about these narratives is just how varied they are. The three women who had been incarcerated in the laundry, Bridget Diskin, Mary O'Rourke and Katrina Hayes, who was in the laundry for 53 years, reflect on how cruel the life and work in the laundry was and how much they were excluded from normal society. John Kennedy, manager of the laundry after it was modernised in 1976, recounts in detail the hard manual labour and the daily life of the women. His account is both harmonious, representing the laundry as one big family, and disharmonious, acknowledging the trauma for the women of being shunned by society. Derek McInerney, a great-nephew of one of the women, gives one of the most intimate accounts of his very fond memories of his great-aunt Julia Kennedy, who spent her life in the laundry from the age of 15 until her death. He would visit Julia with his mother and grandmother, Julia's sister, and Julia, in turn, would be occasionally allowed to come to visit them. 
The women were able, as the survivors attest, to create moments of happiness for themselves within the laundry, but the experience of being institutionalised was, universally, an experience of suffering. Almost all of the accounts reference both physical and emotional trauma to the women. Two of the accounts also attest to the harshness of the life for the nuns, who worked alongside the women. What emerges from these narratives and the photographs of the institutional buildings is the way in which the story of this place was both known and unknown. Derek McInerney knew his aunt Julia Kennedy relatively well. His memories of her are kind and understanding, and he gives a real sense of her as a person, distinct from the institution. Yet at points of his narrative he also admits to not knowing or reflecting on what happened, as when he says, See, I have no idea what went on, on a daily basis, bar the few slices of time that we had with her. Actually, now that I recollect it, all I recall is a void, actually. That term, void, mirrors seemingly the general absence of knowledge or understanding of what happened behind the walls of these institutions. And I want to adopt Guy Biner's term, social agnosia, to consider this kind of void. Agnosia, a medical term, is a cognitive inability to recognise or understand the significance of what is being seen, a result of damage to the brain. It is sometimes called mind blindness. The resulting problem of perception is not an inability to see, but to interpret what is being seen. Because these institutions were seen, they were seen by the communities that abutted their walls, by the families who sent members to them, by the courts who sentenced children and women to them, by the government inspectors who visited them. However, as the Ryan report states, Until very late in the day, the contribution made by the Eroctus or the news media towards supervision or even education of the public in regard to the schools, appears to have been negligible. Pressure groups were rare and usually ineffective. The general public was often uninformed and usually uninterested. All these pools of unknowing reinforced each other. It was a failure of spectatorship. It is helpful to reflect on how this agnosia took root in Ireland, because that is part of remembering not merely to apologise for the abuse, but to understand the system that resulted in that abuse. And unless commemoration practices reflect this understanding, they risk misreading the history to the point that it becomes another form of agnosia. The purpose and effect of the institutional system was to remove individuals who were designated as distinct from the rest of the community, according to religious and social classification. In the early years of the state, a religious and moral discourse of crisis maintained that without these acts of sacrifice, the national community would be engulfed by chaos. Removing allegedly discordant individuals 
an extreme form of social censorship, promoted a perception of social cohesion in the newly cleansed community, as well as ensuring good behaviour from that community. Social agnosia, or forgetting, is the byproduct of and necessary companion to that system of removal. And this was particularly powerful in Ireland due to its post-colonial status as a newly constructed community, intensely aware of its vulnerability as a small Catholic nation. The signs of distinction which justified removal to institutions were declared to be moral. In the case of laundries, this manifested as the stigmatising of women's bodies as sexually transgressive. Many girls, however, who were incarcerated in laundries, were transferred from industrial schools and orphanages. Laundries were thus a dumping ground for women on more than solely sexual grounds. Indeed, in some cases, it was financial motive which led families to commit daughters and sisters to these institutions. These acts of transfer between institutions not only reveal a general contempt for and control of women, but also the ways in which these institutions worked together as a system. And the defining factor here is a combination of gender and class. Indeed, one can argue that class was the primary determinant of distinction. Children committed to industrial schools were guilty, in the main, of poverty. Instead of financially supporting impoverished families to enable children to remain within the family, the family was read as negligent and children were removed until the introduction of child benefit when numbers began to significantly decrease. There were, of course, other distinctions, such as special needs children, but in the main it was about class. If we consider class as a central factor in the history of these various institutions, it is possible to build a more unified history. This is not to collapse the differences between industrial schools and laundries, for example, but to develop a way of seeing this past in collective and holistic terms. The necessity for this seems evident to me by looking at the patterns of existing cultural representations of that history. Industrial schools are represented in the following works, many of which are autobiographical. The God Squad by Paddy Doyle, Nothing to Say, and James X by Mannix Flynn, Dear Daughter by Louis Lenton, Song for a Raggy Boy trilogy by Patrick Galvin, and the film by Ashling Walsh, The Butcher Boy by Pat McCabe, and the film adaptation by Neil Jordan, No Escape by Mary Raftery, and, of course, The Blue Boy. With the exceptions of No Escape and Dear Daughter, all these titles focus exclusively on boys, and No Escape is itself an exception in being about both boys and girls, though in separate institutions. In the media coverage of the Ryan Report, boys tended to figure more largely too, perhaps because of the horror at sexual abuse, which was prevalent in institutions for boys, but not in those for girls. 
In the main, if we want to consider cultural representations of girls, we need to think in terms of laundries. In Eclipsed by Patricia Burke Brogan, Sinners by Ashling Walsh, The Magdalene Sisters by Peter Mullen, The Secret Scripture by Sebastian Barry, and both Laundry and Breaking the Rule of Silence. Challenging the gendered associations of boys with industrial schools and girls with laundries is difficult within the space of single cultural works. This is evident in The Blue Boy, which includes the testimony of a woman who had been committed to a different industrial school, in an attempt by broken talkers to include the history of girls within these institutions. But since the show's focus is on Artane, this testimony seems out of place. The inadvertent result of this pattern of cultural commemoration in memoir, theatre, art and film is that it translates into a gendered mythologization of the past, divided into male history and female history. The outcome of that, I would argue, is that we still think of these institutions in terms of bad boys and bad girls. This shows both class and gender assumptions at work, the criminalisation of working-class boys and the sexualization of working-class girls, overlooking the primary reason for both boys and girls to be committed, the financial inability of the family to provide for them at home. It is, of course, absolutely necessary to have a commemorative culture which addresses specific narratives and, in the case of this history, specific institutions and groups. However, without a full overview of institutionalisation, there is no context against which to read these works back into the larger narrative. The present can thus only partially remember and redress the trauma that resulted from the network of institutions which were operated in Ireland, including orphanages, industrial schools, county homes, mother and baby homes, Magdalene laundries, the Bethany home, institutions for special needs children and psychiatric hospitals. What we need to see is a greater public recognition of the system as a system, as a widespread, to use James Smith's term, architecture of containment. This is not to put the weight of commemoration onto culture. The lead must be taken by the state to put in place a framework within which individual commemorations can be read. Yet within the state's investigation of this history, we again see gender at work. The 2009 Ryan Report into institutional child abuse is a huge achievement, but its glaring absence is the laundries. In turn, the McAleese Report into state involvement in the laundries is extremely limited. This most recent report not only excludes the Protestant Bethany home, a result of reading this history solely through the lens of religion, but also does not address the issue of children adopted through this system. This is the void which still requires investigation. Again, what is being produced is a partial view, meaning that Irish society continues to see its institutional history only obliquely. 
Commemoration should not be about perennially enshrining a sense of victimhood or trauma. Rather, it is a vital mode of acknowledging and making public a history of victimization and exclusion. The relevance of commemoration to the present is shown by a new production's cycle of theatre pieces, including Laundry, set in North Inner City Dublin, which highlights not only the injustices due to poverty in the past, but the continuing poverty and social alienation of the area in the present. What these three works individually and collectively address is the need for active spectators. These works make visible a once-hidden history, but it is up to the spectator to read these signs and interpret them fully, and to decide how to position themselves in relation to that past. The result is not only an active commemorative community, but renewed social agency through active spectatorship. The Ghanaian artist El Anatsui says, Walls are meant by the people who build them to either hide something or sequester something or to protect something. In all cases they have to block the view. And I think that when the view is blocked, the tendency is for the human imagination to take over and leap over that thing and start imagining things at the other side of it. I felt that really walls, rather than conceal things, were constructs which help reveal things. This was not true of Irish society. Walls were allowed to block the view. The blue boy, laundry and breaking the rule of silence are thus valuable for the ways in which they imaginatively explore the space on the other side of those walls, including what had been excluded from Irish cultural memory. But ultimately, perhaps they are most valuable because of the ways in which they make the walls themselves visible. The site-specific nature of these works, their emphasis on materiality and enclosure, of knowing and not knowing, of seeing and not seeing, make visible the processes by which we forgot. You have been listening to Emily Pine in this UCD ScholarCast. A transcript of this lecture can be downloaded at www.ucd.ie forward slash ScholarCast. Thank you.